Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. I was recently eating lunch with one of our parishioners, the artist locally known as Sam Sutherland, and uh, Sam was telling me about his experience salmon fishing in Alaska, which he did last summer, and he's hoping to do again. And he's basically telling me that you're on this like super nasty boat and it's really cramped with these other people and you're working like really long 14 hour days and catching thousands of fish and all this stuff and it's super dangerous. And some of you might be hearing that and being like, sign me up, like yeah, you know, I wanna do that too. But for me, my heart, as he described his time fishing, absolutely started to throb. He's basically describing my utter dream. I have lived landlocked my entire life and have always been deeply, romantically, naively drawn to the ocean. So I geek out on naval and like maritime fiction and history. I'm obsessed with fishing. I long to live on a boat. I basically have a Navy tattoo and I've never been in the Navy. Uh, It's an issue. But uh, when he was talking about it, I was overwhelmed with the desire to want to go do it because he does it for about two months when he goes. But then I realized there's no way that's going to happen. I'm at a stage in my life where I have chosen to make blessed commitments to my family, to my wife and my kids, and also to the church, which render going fishing for several months and living on a boat with a crew probably not in the cards for me at this point in my life. It was one of the first times I've actually reckoned with the fact, it's weird that this is what did it for me, there are things that I really want to do that I probably will never get a chance to do. And as I walked home, I started thinking about a theology of incompleteness, which is not a thing because I just made it up. But I started thinking about it. What does the Bible say about not getting what we want or desire in this life, or at least seasons of where we feel the pain there? Not being able to live on a boat is one thing. It's kind of funny, even though it's not funny for me. But I think this is a reality for us all in deeper ways um, when it comes to relationships or children or careers or experiences or successes. We all go through seasons in some way or another of not having something that we desire. And one of the privilege of pastoral ministry is I get to know so many of you so well. And I know so many of you are in these seasons and they're really hard. And so many of you know us, and you know that my wife and I have been through hard seasons. And there are visitors here this morning. I don't know you at all, but I'm assuming that there are things in your life where you feel this ache as well. This is a commonality among us, that we all go through seasons like that. What do we do with that? How do we process that? How does the Bible teach us to process that? I was having a conversation with another friend and about this idea, and in our conversation, we were, we were kind of drawn to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says this, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture. Paul's saying that in this life, there's an incompleteness. There's a partiality. Did you hear that? 
to our knowledge, but I think you can faithfully say from the scriptures as well, to our experiences, even to our intimacy. But our hope, as he says, is that this world is heading towards completion and towards utter wholeness in Jesus. And to that we say, come then, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Amen? But still, even so, Paul affirms that the life we now live prior to his coming again is partial. And to say that is not to deny the riches that we have in Jesus or his power in our life. It's not to deny or exclude all the miraculous things God does in our life, praying for big things. Jesus saying, faith can move mountains. This is not mutually exclusive with that. To say that the world is partial with Paul is just to be honest, both with our own lives and the testimony of scriptures. So we need to let the scriptures speak into, just like me, in a funny way, walking away from thinking about, I'm never going to get to do that. What God has to say to us, but also into those deeper things. Because I think learning how to live in this tension is not something the culture or pop Christianity really helps us understand how to do. When's the last time you walked by an airport newsstand and saw a book title that was like, How to Live Contentedly, Not Getting Everything You Want? <laughs> New York Times bestseller. How to be content, having all your wildest dreams maybe not come true. No, it's usually like, you're a boss, how to take over the world in five steps, you know? <laughs> how to unlock your insane potential and dominate. <laughs> Open up your bulletin with me to Psalm 37. Um, I really, this psalm is so chock full. This is what we're going to be studying. If you've got a pen or if you have your own Bible, um, we, I kind of want you to mark this up a little bit with me as we study it. This is a psalm of David where David is writing to a younger person who doesn't have what he wants, and it consumes him. And this is David offering, as an older man, wisdom. So there are parts of this psalm that are replicated wholesale in the book of Proverbs. So this is wisdom literature. Um, so if you've ever been through a really hard or foggy time in your life, and then you sat down with that older, wiser man or woman over tea, and it was really beautiful and cozy and fuzzy, and they said the thing you needed to hear that you couldn't think of yourself because you didn't have their experience, that's what it's supposed to feel like when you're reading this. David wants to help us learn how to live in this tension, in the partiality of life, this side of glory. And David's not necessarily going to take you in this psalm into a debate about why or how long seasons are or how to ask Jesus for things or all that. He's just going to meet you where you're at if you're in one of these. He wants to help you live in it and process it and meet Jesus in that season. Four questions I want to ask of these 11 verses. By the way, Psalm 37 is really long, and it's all awesome, but it's really hard to preach a sermon on like 50 verses, so we're just going to focus on this, and I think it does represent the whole thing. Four questions I want to ask of this. Number one, what does this guy desire, the person whom David is speaking to? Number two, what does David counsel him not to do? Number three, what does David counsel him to do? And number four, how do we know this is wise? Why should we take his word for it? So number one, what does this guy desire? Two and three, what does David tell him not to do and then to do? And number four, why should you and I listen? First, what does this guy desire not have? David is writing to someone who wants justice and prosperity, and he is experiencing the incompleteness of both. 
So he wants justice. This is a situation where this person has committed to following God, walking the hard road of obedience and love, and yet he's looking around and there's so much wrong being done towards him and towards others. So just to give you a few phrases and word pictures from this psalm, we get pictures of the wicked drawing their swords, bending their bows. That could be both figurative and literal. They're oppressing the poor. So there's like institutional injustice happening. They're spreading falsehood. They're making dirty business deals. And this guy wants justice. He wants things to be made right, like we talked about last week. But everybody's getting away with it. And it's affecting him. It's gnawing on his mind and it's consuming him. He's not seeing the vindication he longs for. I wonder if you can relate to that. One of the things I love about the Psalms is that they're specific enough to engage reality, but they're general enough to kind of allow you to fill in some of the gaps. And I think this Psalm is definitely that way. So maybe you've been personally wronged. Maybe you are, have a deep heart cry for justice when you look at the world and see so much oppression happening, so much institutional injustice happening. That's the first one, and it leads to his desire for prosperity, which is the second thing you can tell just from the way that this is written that he so hungers for, just satisfaction, because these people that he's looking at are thriving. They're prospering. They're all experiencing deep success and satisfaction and joy, and he's not. Again, we don't know what it is in particular, but I think we can use our imagination. He's not satisfied with his life, and he's surrounded by people who have what he wants. Can you relate to that? Could be a marriage or a relationship you don't have, children, money, a job. I love how in the Ten Commandments he says not to covet your neighbor's ox. Uh, you know, it could be a car or an ox, something much more serious. This guy's longings for prosperity are not necessarily bad, but they're unmet. His experience of them is partial. They're incomplete, and these things are consuming him. He's wrestling with them. So David's meeting him in the middle of that emotional tension. So what does David tell him, guys? I would encourage you. Here's the first thing. Fret of a pen, or you just want to underline it with your eyes. I would encourage you. Here's the first thing. Fret not. It's the very beginning of the psalm. You can underline that in your, in your bulletin of your Bible. This is like the refrain of the entire psalm. He says it again and again. Fret not. And that phrase comes from a Hebrew word that means something like anxious anger. It's this smoldering, bitter anger that burns into a hectic anxiety. So this is being wronged or experiencing injustice in some way, and it's replaying the tape over and over and over again in your mind until it consumes you and it boils up in this deep rage. I think I've shared this story before, but I know the story of a guy who was really was pumping up his car with gas. And you know how it goes when you're in these situations. You just can't think straight. And so before he finished pumping, he just gets back in his car and drives off and rips the, the gas pump out of the thing and just drives on the highway. Didn't even realize it. That's fretting. David is assuming this person is experiencing it. I think it's fair to say he's assuming, and the Bible would be assuming we experience that as well in our own ways. 
But hear David's wisdom. This is in verse 7, kind of starting in that second line. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. <sighs> Exhale. Refrain from anger. He's saying anger is right there. Do not reach out and take hold of that. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. So David acknowledges this is boiling up in him, but his wisdom is refrain from it. Don't let fretting turn into anger or wrath. Second main thing he says not to do, and here's the other thing to underline. This is also in verse 1, the second line. Be not envious. Fret not, be not envious. I don't think I need to explain envy. <laughs> because we're all adults here, we get it. But this is constantly assessing what you do or don't have on the basis of others. I've said this before too, but I love Teddy Roosevelt's quote, comparison is the thief of joy. And this is living your life, having all your joys and your thanksgiving stolen, stripped away from you, because you live with what your eyes are on what other people have. David is assuming he's feeling both things. His incomplete experience of justice leads him to fretting, to that anger. His incomplete experience of prosperity leads him to envy. This is really important. This is one of the things I just love about the Bible, but David does not minimize or belittle his pain. He doesn't minimize his longing for either of those things. He doesn't rebuke him for it. Did you notice that? But he's very clear in saying envy and wrath are not the way to process this. They tend only to evil. But David doesn't just say, don't do this. I was laughing this morning as I was preparing it. There's this old mad TV sketch about this psychologist who meets this woman, and she's like telling about all these really real things. I get a couple of smiles, and he goes, okay, I'm about to help you out. Are you ready? She's like, yeah. He goes, stop it. Just quit it. Just stop doing that, you know. She's like, yeah, but I feel all these like, just stop, you know. I think sometimes we can feel like Christian teaching is like that. Just like, quit it. Don't feel that emotion. That would be impossible advice. Amen? Which is why it's hilarious as a uh, comedy sketch. His wisdom is to turn from something towards something. So there's a lot that he's going to tell him to do and cultivate here, but I think there are three we can summarize. And if you're like me and you're pictorial, maybe you could circle these in your psalm. There's three of them, and they're, all, they're right there. Number one, befriend faithfulness. This is in verse three. If you have a pen, circle befriend faithfulness. The verbs in verse three, if, you, if you're looking at it, are polar opposite of those in verse one and eight. Think about anger and wrath and fretting and envy. They're all frantic, violent, corrosive emotions and postures. But those in verse 3 are almost pastoral, aren't they? Look at it. Trust. Do good. Dwell. Be still. <sighs> and the Hebrew that's translated as befriend faithfulness here is literally feed or pasture on faithfulness. So it's like if you're a sheep, go to the faithful pasture and just eat it. Just graze on it. It's almost like David is saying, don't get caught up in trying to win the lottery or satisfy revenge. Just go outside and start farming. Plow your field. Do what's right. Quit worrying about everyone else. Um, the perfect example of this is Jesus. I was really drawn to this story. There's this time that the disciples can tell he's really hungry. 
and they urge him to eat, and he has real unmet longings, which is amazing that Jesus entered into that space. Isn't that amazing? He experienced what those seasons were like, and his disciples want to satisfy him, so they're like, hey, you should eat some bread, and Jesus says, I've got bread you don't know about, and of course, they think really literal, so they're like, you don't have any bread. Where'd you get it? How could you do that? And Jesus responds, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' food was faithfulness. He didn't grasp at satisfying himself. I love how Isaiah even says that. He will not please himself. Satan even tempts him. This is the temptation. You can have everything you want. Just give me your integrity. Join in the rat race, and I'll give you all the bread and all the kingdoms and all the glory, and he resists it. So I think we could say, just to define befriending faithfulness, in opposition to anger and anxiety, what we talked about before, befriending faithfulness is focusing on what is right instead of focusing on what you don't have. Let me say that again. Focusing on what is right instead of focusing on what you don't have. If like the psalmist, you're consumed by something you have suffered or by something you so eagerly desire, David would say, replace that hectic envy or anger with quiet, simple faithfulness. One gives birth to death and evil, the other produces what I love the Bible says is a harvest of righteousness. We cannot control our own emotions, we cannot control others. The Bible's not asking you to. But we can control what we commit to. So I think this gives us that opportunity to wake up and pray, Lord, in my life, in my situation, in my circumstances, what does it look like for me to dwell and be still and befriend faithfulness, to do what is right? That's the first thing. Second, this is in verse 4. You could circle this as well. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. This is a really famous verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because it seems to be talking about getting what we want, so we all love it. Um, But I think in the context here, this is David speaking to somebody who's currently suffering injustice and not getting what they want, right? So David is not saying, here's the magic wand to get what you want through God. So what is he talking about? I think David is encouraging this man to reorient his affections upon God. Delight yourself is a command. It's an imperative challenge. So he's saying, I want you to delight yourself in God. He's challenging us who live in the tension of incomplete justice and incomplete satisfaction to grip our longings and our desires and to channel them towards Jesus. And the promise, here's the kicker of verse 4, is that when we do that, he will meet our longings and he will satisfy our desires. That's the promise of verse 4. When we are struggling with envy or anger, looking at those around us, biblical wisdom is not just do the right thing, befriend faithfulness, just plod along, and just deal with the fact that your life isn't going to be as good as everybody else's. That is not what this is saying. Amen? This is really important. The scriptures are counseling us to turn in our place of pain and longing to the river of delights and to have our joy be full. And again, I just want to use Jesus as my analogy. He's the epitome of somebody who befriended faithfulness. 
he says, this is my food, to do the will of my Father. And yet he also suffered. He suffered injustice more than any of us. He probably had less creature comforts and relational stability than most of us. And yet Jesus' joy was full, right? It was overflowing. To be in his presence was to be in the presence of secure, full joy. Why? How? Because he delighted in God. And God gave him everything. Jesus was utterly satisfied, even as he lived in our world of partiality. So the wisdom of God is that when we're in seasons where there's great emptiness in our hope and in our heart, that we take those places in our hearts to God. We delight in him and we ask him, would you fill it? The scriptures don't promise that we get everything we want according to our standards, but they absolutely promise in a check that you can take to the bank that God will satisfy. Um, Caitlin actually taught on this psalm a couple weeks ago at an Evensong, and she made this beautiful point that there's another way to understand this, which is just a, a beautiful kind of extension of this, that when you choose to delight in God, he'll give you your desires. He'll give you your desires of your heart. So he actually can reshape your affections and grow your palate for eternity, which is sometimes what he does in season when he asks you to wait. He can shift even your longings, which is an amazing thing. So what does this practically look like to delight in God? I always hate in sermons when I feel like the, the answer is like read your Bible and pray and go to church and stuff. And I kind of am about to say that, but I don't really want to. But it is seeking the face of God. To delight in him, you need to spend time with him. And we spend time with him in the community of the church, in prayer, through the Holy Spirit, in word and sacrament and all those things. But if I can just give you one practical thing, particularly if you're hearing this and there is a, a deep ache, I would encourage you with another person or by yourself to go to the Lord in prayer and offer him that space. Say, Lord, I have this deep emptiness, this deep hunger and longing, and I want you to fill it. I want you to enter into that space with me. This is a long process in terms of walking with him through then, but I think that would be a good place to start. And while beautiful string music is playing later on in this service, if you want to just do that with somebody else, we'll have prayer ministers who would love to pray through that with you. Third, verse 7, wait patiently. Circle that sucker. Wait patiently. That is in verse 7, right? There are different psalm printings that have different numbers. Yeah, it's in, okay. David's wisdom to us in the tension of incomplete justice and satisfaction is wait. Remember, we are playing the long game here, not the short game. Amen? That is what Advent is meant to remind you of. This is the long game, not the short game. Don't think your life now is the end of the story. That's a lie. Don't think injustice will win or go unspoken. That is an also an evil lie. It will not. Don't think your longings and your desires are merely earthly or temporal. That is also an untruth. The whole world is on a trajectory towards a new day in Jesus. And on that day, he will judge 
like we talked about last week, and he will restore justice. And on that day, every desire you ever had will be more fully sated and quenched than you ever could have imagined. The perfect will come, the partial will pass away. Hallelujah. And biblical wisdom, this is why if you've never really read the Bible, you should just soak yourself in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the Psalms because biblical wisdom is living life and experiencing loss and incompleteness with that in mind, that this is not the end of the story. Look at verse 5. I think this will all come to life a little bit more now that we've talked about it. I'm just going to read from verse 5 to verse 11. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You recognize verse 11, if you know the Bible well, from the Beatitudes, right? Who knew that Jesus was quoting the Old Testament? It's like when you hear a good song and you're like, man, this is an amazing song. It's so much better than the songwriter. And then you realize, oh, it was a Bob Dylan song and it was just covered. I feel like that happens all the time. When you read lots of stuff in the New Testament, you're like, wait, this is an Old Testament thing? Amazing. To this man who's groaning from complete, incomplete justice and prosperity, David is saying, wait, justice will be satisfied. That's a truth. And you will be satisfied. In verse 11, the meek will delight themselves in abundant peace. So how do we live through seasons of, of longing and groaning? We befriend faithfulness. We farm. We put one foot in front of the other. We commit to doing the simple and the right thing. This is what the Lord requires of us. We delight in God. So we give those spaces of anger and envy and emptiness to him. We offer them to him. And we ask him to redirect those emotions toward delight and pleasure in him. And then finally, we wait in the knowledge that our divine pleasure is indeed and already not yet, even our satisfaction in Jesus. We trust that God will act, that justice will arise as the noonday, and that the meek will inherit the earth. And now we end with our last question. How do we know this is wise? There are a lot of really smart people who would read this or hear me saying what I'm saying and would just gag and be like, here Christianity goes again dangling an eternal carrot in front of poor suffering people, you know, to keep them claustrophobic and caught up under their old religion, to not throw it off and just grab what you want, unlock your potential, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's a real criticism. Maybe you're asking it. Why should we listen to this? Well, first, I think we tend to forget this sometimes, at least in my generation, but we actually aren't the first people to live or to suffer, or to follow God. People have been around 
and doing that for thousands and thousands of years with the same God and the same earth and the same flesh. So even in David's time, he had some wisdom data to work with. And I'm going to read some stuff from the end of this psalm. This is from verse 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And in verse 25, I have been young, and now I'm old. Picture David drinking tea, chamomile tea across from you at some coffee shop in Madison. I was young, now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Amen? Or his children begging for bread. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Wisdom literature is trying to get you to quit trusting the stock market or Instagram and to start contemplating the ancient paths. David's saying, listen, I'm not blowing smoke. I've seen this proven true, and I've seen all the saints bear witness to the truth of this. And when we walk through Bible history, we see story after story of God being faithful to people who suffer and who wait through seasons of incompleteness. So just two big ones. Let's talk about Israel and let's talk about Jesus. Israel suffered through so much in the Old Testament, through exile. They held on to God-made promises to them that they didn't even taste or see the fulfillment of for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were a people who prayed and trusted and waited, and we are the inheritors of their tradition, especially if you're a goyim like me and you're a Gentile. Amazing passage we read today from Romans 15. But what happened? This is where Advent starts to sparkle. The righteousness was brought forth at the noonday at the first coming of the Messiah. When the root of Jesse bore fruit, and if you know the Bible, Mary sings this song when she realizes she's pregnant. It's called the Magnificat, one of the great pieces of all literature ever. And what does she talk about? God remembered. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's brought down the wicked. He's raised up the poor. He remembered those in low estate. And I love, nothing is better than Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, for the farming of faithfulness, shall come home with shouts of joy. That's Israel. That's what we remember when we remember when angel Gabriel showed up to Mary. Blessed are you among women. And then think about Jesus' life. The Bible describes him as a man of sorrows. The only descriptor we get for Jesus in the creed of what his life was like is that he suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's how we describe his life. He was smitten, stricken, and afflicted. His life was cut short at 33. I'm sure there were so many things in his life that he wanted but never got. Jesus was a human, but he drank the cup and he died unjustly. And yet what happened? On the third day, he rose again. 
justice was satisfied. He was satisfied. So no, it's not foolish for us to take David's advice. It's not foolish to cling to the word of God and remain faithful and wait. Advent is the season we cultivate this posture of waiting, this posture of learning how to to delight in God even in the midst of the hard things. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And for those who wait upon the Lord, justice will be satisfied and we will be satisfied. Would you stand? We're going to finish this in a little bit different way. Maddie, could you come up? I've asked Maddie to lead us one more time. We're going to finish the sermon by singing, Come Now Long Expected Jesus. And I just don't know if there's anything that speaks about Israel's longing and satisfaction in Jesus' first coming and the posture of our hearts for Jesus' second coming than these insanely beautiful words. So as we sing this, I want this to be for you a heart cry and a prayer, kind of the period to the sentence of spending time in Psalm 37. And just listen, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation and joy of every longing, aching, suffering heart. to mm-hmm.